Forest Café with Dennis McKenna. Dr. David E. Nichols, known as Dr. Dave to his friends, is one of the world's foremost authorities on the chemistry and pharmacology of psychedelic substances. Prior to his retirement in June 2012, he was the Robert C. and Charlotte P. Anderson Distinguished Chair in Pharmacology at the Purdue University College of Pharmacy and also was Adjunct Professor of Pharmacology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. The focus of his graduate training beginning in 1969 and of much of his research subsequent to receiving his doctorate in 1973 has been the investigation of the relationship between molecular structure and the action of psychedelic agents and other substances that modify behavioral states. His research has been continuously funded by government agencies for more than three decades, widely published in the scientific literature, and internationally recognized for his research on centrally active drugs. He has studied all of the major classes of psychedelic agents including LSD and other lysergic acid derivatives, psilocybin and the tryptamines, and phenethylamines related to mescaline. His decades of experience and wide respect within the research community, combined with his insistence on rigorous methods and quality science, have set a high bar for contemporary psychedelic research. In 1993, with the collaboration of colleagues, Dr. Nichols founded the Hefter Research Institute, realizing his vision of a privately funded institute as the most effective mechanism for bringing research on psychedelic agents into the modern era of neuroscience. That vision was more than prescient. Since its founding, the Hefter Institute has emerged as a leading force advancing psychedelic research in numerous institutions. Since its founding in 1993, Hefter-affiliated researchers have accounted for 63% of top-cited articles on classic psychedelics. I was proud to be among those scientists originally invited to join the board of the Hefter Research Institute in 1993. And today, I'm equally proud to invite Dr. Dave, my colleague and good friend, to share his wisdom with us. So, Dr. Dave, welcome to the Brain Forest Cafe. Great to see you again, Dennis. Great to see you, as always. So, I really appreciate your taking time to talk to us about this. Obviously, we share a long history. We've been in this game for longer than most people, actually. And maybe we've learned a bit about psychedelics. But, you know, your your achievements in the field are just staggering. I don't have to be the one to tell you that. I was just looking at your publication record at PubMed, how many papers with Nichols D.E. as an author were on them. Nearly 400 papers. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, got to do something. I guess so. Well, that's, that's one way to look at it. But, you know, you were not, uh, you didn't get into this because you had to do something. You got into it because you were passionately interested in psychedelics and how they worked and some of these other mind-altering substances, but psychedelics was your main focus. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, and I was very lucky and in, in, in the right place at the right time as well. Yeah, I think I think many people weren't. You know, I, I feel the same way. I mean, we we had different tracks. I never became a successful academic and I sort of lost interest in really becoming that, but I was able to work within institutions that gave me chances to work on things I was 
interested in, but I was never on a track to uh, become a prominent tenured professor as you somehow managed to do, you know, probably uh, productive. I'm writing, writing my memoirs in the Title is the accidental professor. <laughs> there you go. That, that's a good one. So, so you're you're writing a memoir. Yeah. What? Uh, what? What is that going to be published? Oh, I don't know. I have to find somebody that wants to publish it first. I'm going through doing final edits. Uh, the beginning is boring. It's about my early life, and uh, then I get into sort of my sociopathic behavior as a teenager, making explosives and tear gas and blowing things up. And then uh, <laughs> and then, then, then got into uh, graduate school and somehow managed to end up working on psychedelics. And uh, from there on, it was like, well, it was in my groove. Yeah, that was, the, that was the groove. And you stayed in it from 1969 to the present, and you're still in it. So what do you look at? Look back about all that's happened in psychedelic research in the last decades, and particularly in the last couple decades. What rises to the top? What impresses you most? Are you are you happy that psychedelics are now like almost respectable? Lots of people are wanting to investigate them, or what's your uh, I... about where they're at right now? Because uh, it's a long way from the founding of the Hefter Institute 30 years ago. Yeah, I, I never imagined really we'd get here. Um, you know, we, it was at a Hefter meeting and, and some woman asked me, you know, like, where do you see the future of this field is going? And this is probably 20 years ago. And I said, I don't know, uh, someday, probably long after I'm dead, um, someone's have, well, we have a midlife crisis and they'll go and see their primary care physician and They'll send him down to a shaman slash psychiatrist and they'll give him a session with psychedelics and they'll get a new perspective. And she says, oh my God, do you think he'll be dead by then? I said, probably, but <laughs> if, the vector's pointing, if the vector's pointing in the right direction, that'll be okay. Right, right. Well, it's, you can never predict, you know. I mean, you, you, one, one doesn't know how long we're going to stick around, but certainly, uh, you know, You've been a pioneer, and I think found, founding the Hefter Institute was probably, in retrospect, it seems like the a great idea, that, and it was. The Hefter's been a beacon of sort of leading the way and in terms of fostering good research and all that. Uh, much less, much more low-key, I think, than MAPS. I mean, MAPS has made many contributions, but in a lot of ways, they're in some ways a PR campaign, you know, and that's good. That's probably needed. Hefter kept the focus on research and uh, worked with uh, so many investigators and and fostered so many, so many, you know, young and old investigators in this field. And I think that the, uh, you know, the, the, it, it shows, and in some ways that work has had an impact, you know, obviously, particularly in the, when it comes to psilocybin, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't stake out psilocybin as our exclusive interest, but as it turned out, we ended up, we, I mean, the Hefter Institute, uh, turned out kind of supporting a lot of that seminal research that's led to the place we are today, where psilocybin is kind of being recognized as the primary therapeutic psychedelic. And uh, we, you know, the Hefter can take a lot of credit for that. And of course, Roland was on our board for a long time. And, you know, the band's a saint. And hopefully, I hope he's in heaven with the saints now because he was, you know, an incredible force to move this work forward you know, as well as being a wonderful human being. And I think uh, that's important too. You know, I think it was Stan Groff who said the reason that the uh, new wave of psychedelic research is being respected is because 
of the character of the, of the people that are doing it, you know, and I think he's definitely right about that. And Roland is one of the prime examples. Yeah, I was really happy to be able to recruit Roland for the Hefter board. You know, um, I had made DMT for Rick Strassman, and then he he wanted to move ahead and use psilocybin. So he he had a small grant, and he said, "Okay, why don't you make some psilocybin?" And we started working on it, and it turned out that the way Hoffman had made it originally was with a reagent. It was called dibenzyl chloride, but um, that reagent was said to be unstable. And bottles of the reagent sitting around could spontaneously detonate. Hmm. Well, my tech my technician Stuart came to me and he said, I'd rather not work with that. And after we had a discussion, I said, We're not going to work with anything that can spontaneously explode. <laughs> so we spent so we spent out Rick's money. Rick and, and Strassman, he got really upset with me because he thought we had a contract. You know, in the contract you agree to make something for a certain amount of money. But with a research grant, which is what we had, you say, we're going to propose to try to do this. And we just couldn't find a way to do it. So we worked and worked and worked for a long time. And then um, Bob Jesse came to me. He started working with Roland to do his study in psilocybin in um, normal people. And um, we had figured out a reagent we could use. It wasn't a great reagent. It was uh, a derivative of... Uh, phenol, and um, you could put a phosphate on that and it would transfer onto psilocin and make psilocybin. But then you had the byproduct, you had this pentafluorophenol, and it, because it was so electron deficient, stuck to the uh, endal ring, which was electron excessive, and so you get this complex, so it was very hard to break up. Mm -hmm. So we made initially four, we made initially about four grams, I think, somewhere around four grams of Roland, and that was for that study that he published in um, uh, then uh, what? Twenty six, sixteen? No, twenty twenty oh six. That was the first study in normals. And then we went back and I looked at Altman's patent. And Stuart and looked at the patent. I looked at the patent, and he had in there um, tetrabenzopyrophosphate as a, as an alternative to what he was using. So yeah. then we started using that. And then um, we made. 24 grams or so of psilocybin for Roland to use at Johns Hopkins. But, you know, we, we, I don't know if you were in the board meeting then or not, but Charlie Grobe was supposed to do a study with MDMA in cancer patients. Uh -huh. And he met with the board and he says, I don't want to give cancer patients MDMA. It's a psycho stimulant, stimulate their heart rate and blood pressure, and they're already really compromised. And I really don't want to give him that. What do you What do you think we could give him? So we looked at the possibilities. You may I don't know if you remember this discussion or not, but we said, well, there's LSD. Of course, that was used widely in the fifties and sixties. But if we use LSD, we thought there would be immediate feeding frenzy. Immediately going, you're giving LSD to dying patients. This is horrible. This is terrible. This is you know again. This is back in the nineties. And then so then there was mescaline. We knew it was in. Aoi cactus and Native American sacrament, but a lot of and it and it lasts a long time, like LSD. They both last eight to ten hours. So if you if you're going to use one in therapy, you'd have to keep some patients overnight and and release them the next day. So that would add cost to the clinical component. And mescaline made a lot of people nauseous and actually vomit. And uh, so we said well, we don't want to give sick people something that makes them feel sicker. And the other possibility really was psilocybin and. People have been eating magic mushrooms for millennia, and it only lasted four to six hours, which means we could do it in one day, bring them in the morning, give the treatment, and then they could be discharged at the end of the day. And it was fairly benign. We knew we probably wouldn't have to do a lot of toxicology tests because so many people had been eating magic mushrooms. I think it was generally recognized as safe, although some of the studies have had to do some preclinical tox, but really not a lot. And that really was the key and then being able to make it. And now the synthesis has been improved a couple of times since my synthesis. And so now it can be made in, you know, multi-kilogram quantities pretty easily. And um, of course, Yusona has made one and a half kilos by the simplest method probably. But I think we were very prescient in choosing psilocybin. And it had been used, you know, in the Good Friday experiment that Walter Pankey had done back in, what, 62, I think. And uh, 
but nobody had really talked about it. The magic mushroom story, you know, came out of Life magazine with um, uh, the New York banker and Valentina, his wife. And uh, so people knew of it. But I remember when I rode a plane early on, when we after we started after, and I, I was sitting next to a psychiatrist, and I said we were using psilocybin, planning psilocybin studies. And he said, "Psilocybin, what's that?" <laughs> I said, "Did you ever, did you ever hear of magic mushrooms?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, that's that's the active component in them." And then he was baffled that we were planning to do a study where we were going to give those to humans. You're going to give these drugs to humans. Because it, it was, you know, there was so much media, negative media coverage. Really, back in those days, I mean, nowadays we look back and think, well, starting the Hefter Institute, it was a lot of fun, and and uh, we got a lot of comradeship, and we started a lot of interesting stuff. I never really thought about the fact of how banned and how negative it was, but we were really swimming upstream with respect to a lot of the media, as you know, you know, that- nobody was talking. About eating magic mushrooms and giving LSD to dying people and things like that back in those days. And really, I think I, I think you're right that the seminal studies that we respond to were Charlie Grove's study of cancer patients in UCLA, which he published in 2011. Um, but it wasn't really definitive because his doses had been too small, but he got it published in a top journal. And then uh, the two studies at Johns Hopkins and, and New York University with psilocybin and cancer patients that were both published in the same issue of Journal of Psychopharmacology in 2016. Right. I really think those are kind of the seminal studies that got people thinking because now you could get approval to do the studies. You wouldn't get money to support them, but the FDA would approve the studies and people are starting to say, oh yeah, you can use these. And there was more media attention on you know, what these were and books were starting to come out. So I think if, if Hefter hadn't been there, you know, you have to give credit to Rick Dobbin. He has quite a dog and pony show and raised millions of dollars to get MDMA off the ground. But in the beginning, I think he planned to look at a lot of different psychedelics. As you know, he 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 paid for the um, psilocybin in the Francisco Moreno study of psilocybin and OCD at University of Arizona back when. And I think Rick thought he was going to expand and cover lots of psychedelics. Well, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, MDMA, I don't even consider as actually it. It's not a classic psychedelic. But I think he had much more ambition uh, than just doing MDMA. But once he got into the meat of the thing and realized that was going to cost him tens and tens of millions of dollars, you know, most drug companies find this out. Most startup biotechs find out. You can't get unfocused. You have to say, okay, this is what we're going to do, and that's where we're going to put our resources and put our attention. So um, Rick focused on MDMA, God bless him, and uh, it looks like it might be approved next year. And we really focused on uh, psilocybin, which has been used widely now for lots of different indications. And I think psilocybin won't be too much farther out than the MDMA as far as getting approval from the FDA. You, you, so you think that psilocybin is not going to be approved within the next couple of years? I mean, it seems like there's a huge body of data now that shows it's efficacious and it's safe. And in some ways, it's almost the ideal classic psychedelic for clinical use. And so what are the barriers to approval? How come it's not getting fast, yeah. not enough publicity? Yeah. It has been fast track for dreaming resistant depression, right? Like MDMA. So I think it will come, um, but there there are a lot of little studies. Whereas Rick's focus was was totally on MDMA for PTSD. So yep. what you're seeing is small studies for OCD, small studies for smoking cessation, uh, relatively small studies for alcohol use disorder, uh, studies planned for eating disorders. So there's a lot of little ones, but you basically get it approved for a single indication. And I don't know if there's any, you know, I think uh, Compass maybe uh, is, is closest to being sort of the drug paradigm to getting approval for psilocybin and major depressive disorder. But all these little studies, I mean, it's sure, certainly demonstrating the possible value of psilocybin for lots of different things, but the FDA wants a single indication and nobody is focusing all their attention on getting large enough clinical studies for single indications. So 
that's probably a little bit of the problem. The other problem is nobody wants to um, spend you know a whole day in a clinic. You know that when I I asked um, Steve Ross at New York University what he estimated the cost was per patient in their study of uh, cancer patients, and he said when he added it all together with the clinical rental time and that's the, the therapist and all, but he thought it was about twenty five thousand per patient. You're not going to get insurance companies to reimburse twenty five thousand dollars per patient. So scalability is a big issue. Mm-hmm. MDMA at MDMA you, you have two or three sessions. And the sessions last what three to four hours, um, and it's recognized that PTSD is a, is a real serious problem, especially with veterans. And there isn't anything. Um, so I think with psilocybin, it's going to take longer. Um, it would be nice to shorten it. There are attempts to shorten its duration of action. A company that I was associated with before, Alusis Therapeutics, which was bought by um, Beckley SciTech. We developed an intravenous infusion method that looked like we could achieve therapeutic levels and get back out in two to three hours. But if you get beyond that, if you look at some of the other things, like I know there were people that were thinking of developing a molecule called 2CB, you know what that is. Um, and But there's no preclinical toxicology. And if you go with, you know, a diisopropyl tryptamine, a 4-hydroxy-DIPT, which is a very short-acting uh, tryptamine. It lasts, I think, two to three hours. There's no preclinical toxicology on that. So I think with anything else people come up with, if it hasn't doesn't if it does have a history of use, I think they're going to have to spend the money to do preclinical tox on it, and that's going to take a lot of time and money. And investors, you know, they want they want a quick return, you know, a quick return on their money. So yeah. and there's there's it's difficult to to. Uh make uh make a profit on psilocybin because it's been in the public domain and all this effort to find uh derivatives and so on that could be patentable they may be but they're not necessarily better than psilocybin i mean terence said a lot of a lot of things (laughs) but one thing he said that i think stuck that i think there's true is truth to he said psilocybin is made for bad you know and of course, he said it back in the '60s. So, made for humans. I mean, it is kind of uniquely compatible with human uh, physiology. Yeah. It's non-toxic. It maybe the length of duration is a little bit too much, but actually, it's you know, I I kind of feel. I mean, for instance, these extended DMT states that people are working with, or even ketamine. There's sort of a feeling, maybe it's a characteristic of our rush culture, but it's like there's a feeling like, you know, if you can't do it in under two hours, then it's it's not good, you know, anything beyond that. But, you know, I think you have to spend time in these states. You actually have to change the paradigm so that therapists are able to spend more time in the therapeutic space with their patience because it takes time to work through this stuff and and work it out so the current therapeutic you know it seems like they're attempting to devise the medicine to fit into the existing protocols what they need to do is change the protocols to fit the medicine is sort of my feeling about it and especially with things like psilocybin or or even ayahuasca i mean that that stands for you know that demands a completely different approach. But actually, you know, I, I don't think ayahuasca is ever going to become an FDA-approved drug, and I don't think it should be. I mean, you know, back earlier in this century, we were talking about getting an IND for ayahuasca, you know, and there was a lot of discussion. Well, subsequently, some people have done that, Uh they don't have any funding to support the research, but they do have the IND. But I'm sort of leaning toward the idea that these plant medicines shouldn't be, you know, with the exception of mushrooms, which you can grow by the ton, you know, there is no shortage issue. With something like ayahuasca or iboga, you know, these have been turned into endangered 
species, basically, because they've gotten so popular. So we have to think about that. You know, if if you, you couldn't make enough ayahuasca to serve everybody's needs, you know, I mean, you'd, there are billions of people who could benefit from it, but that's impossible to produce that much. Boys can study ayahuasca to actually be very similar to um, psilocybin in terms of its effects. I'm not sure. I mean, it was attractive because it was a planned medicine and people could go to Peru or in other places and have the sessions. But I was never convinced that it was superior to psilocybin. A duration of action is about the same. And, you know, you know yourself, a lot of people vomit. You know, they consider the purging as part of the process. The times I have taken and I didn't vomit and I didn't feel like I wanted to to purge. Um, I, I always thought it was because the ayahuasca had not been properly prepared and had a lot of uh, byproducts in there that were emetic. But, um, but anyway, um, you know, the question I, I've gotten asked a lot is about this move to develop non-psychedelic psychedelics, so to speak. And you've probably heard this. Yes, I wanted to ask you what your perspective on that is. So, um, I think for major depressive disorder, just garden variety depression that people are treated with SSRIs with, I think a pill is fine. But if you talk to people that have been given, especially psilocybin and cancer patients, um, or even in substance use disorders, alcoholics, there's a cognitive component. You know, you've I think you've watched some of the videos that I also watched some of the studies of people that were cancer patients that were given psilocybin-assisted therapy. And there's a process there, going back and re-examining your past, re-examining your relationship with your siblings and your parents, looking at your life as a whole, and you really get a different perspective. And uh, there's something that changes about your perspective on your view on life um, and, and death, your view on death. And it's not so frightening for those people anymore. Whatever has happened, it's, and it's, the parallel is to the near-death experience. You know, a lot of people have a near-death experience from an accident or something like that. They come back with it from it with a new joie de vivre. They're excited. They're not afraid of anything. They're, they're much more risk-taking, much more open in their personality. The same kind of thing happens to cancer patients when they have that transcendent experience. And I think that's a really an important component to be able to think about death, think about your life, think about the things you've done, and that doesn't happen with the pill. That's not going to happen with the pill. And then, of course, the follow-up integration where you can actually talk about what do you think that meant? How did it make you feel? You know, we, we saw one of the guys in one of these studies who had become estranged from his brother for 10 years. And after the session, he called his brother up and said, you know, we need to, we need to connect again. You're my brother. I love you. you know, let's, let's not let things happen like this. Those kinds of changes in perception don't occur with a pill. You need that, whatever that cognitive component is, psychedelic does. And I think the same thing is true for um, alcohol uh, use disorder, substance use disorders, even perhaps for smoking. Um, we, we saw the interview of one of the, after me, from one of the um, alcohol use disorder patients that had been treated in a New York University study by Michael Bogenschutz. And he said, you know, I had this, I took this medicine, I went back and I looked at when I first started drinking and why I started drinking and why he kept drinking, and it completely changed his life. He'd been living with his parents, and he said every time he went someplace, he'd look to find out where were all the alcohol stores, so when he needed to drink, he knew where to go. And his life was all focused on getting alcohol. Where was he going to get his next drink of alcohol? And he said this medicine changed him completely, and I don't think that happens with the pill. We, we've never had a pill that did in any way. So... And, you know, one of the first things that the heterists who wanted to do, but we never could get any interest, was treating eating disorders. That is the most lethal psychiatric disorder, and it primarily strikes young women, young adolescents and, and young women. And what is it about an eating disorder? You know, it's a, it's a dysmorphic body image thing. And I always thought, Mark Geyer and I talked to Francis Olenweyer years and years ago about it. You could get, take somebody with anorexia, give them psilocybin, and have them stand in front of a mirror, say, what do you see? And, you know, I don't need to tell you what the consequence of that would be, because you can imagine what, what you know, say, psychedelics. They yes. see probably this emaciated, 
young woman that was killing herself. And that would be powerful. That psychedelics really have the ability to enhance those perceptions. So those kinds of things I don't think you get with a pill. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I don't think you can separate the cathartic cognitive experience that is intrinsic to the therapeutic effect. Maybe with major depressive disorder, it's an exception because maybe there's just some kind of a long-term you know, shift in the receptor receptor ohm in some ways that chemical imbalance or something that you can restore. But yeah. But it's it's a difference in perception. I mean, on one hand, you know, I mean the school of thought that says we can design non-psychedelic psychedelics. I mean, by definition, that's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a non-psychedelic psychedelic because it's not a psychedelic. <laughs> but this I but it's this perception that it, it stems from this perception that people are just molecular machines, you know, and if we use the right monkey winch and we tweak the machine a certain way, we can be fixed. And, and what that does is it takes the soul out of the process. And I think yeah. a major thing, my own personal feeling is that with the reintegration re-acceptance of psychedelics into medicine effectively you're bringing the soul back into medicine you know you have to acknowledge that there's something called the soul the spirit whatever you want to term it that really responds to these kinds of things and you can't you can't med medicine has been trying to exorcise spirit out of medicine for 150 years to say well you know, we're just complex machines and that's all there is to it. And you can use these molecules and make changes. And I think psychedelics are the strongest argument illustration, really, that that's not the case. There's more to it. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. What do you make of these uh, extended state DMT protocols that people are working with now, uh, apparently in an effort to, well, in some ways to have a powerful experience that's shorter, but not too short, less long than psilocybin. I mean, what, what's your perspective on, on all that work? You know, uh, one of the, I thought one of the motivations for that was, you know, if you, if you read the stuff from Rick Strawson's DMT studies, or you watched the movie, mm -hmm. these people thought there were aliens that they could communicate with, but they didn't have a long enough time to communicate with them. Right. So I think part of part of the motivation of these extended DMT trips was to see if they could make it long enough that they could communicate with these a apparent alien entities. Um, I don't, you know, I never saw anybody say, oh, well, therapy and therapeutic effect is going to be improved if we just extend the duration of DMT. Now, maybe some people have said that, but in the beginning, you know, with Strassman and that, uh, and Andrew Gallimore, they, they said, well, you don't get, you don't get tolerance to the effects of DMT like you do with mescaline or, or LSD. So if you don't get tolerance, we can give it repeatedly or we can give it our extended period of time where we can extend that out. I, I never saw anybody say, we think that will improve the therapeutic efficacy. I've never heard anybody actually say that. Um, then that may be part of the rationale, but in the beginning, I heard people say, yeah, maybe if we could extend that, we could communicate with these you know, alien entities. So I think it's kind of, I think it's more something they're doing more for curiosity than for any real medical reason. That's just yeah. my perception. This, this is very much from the psychonautic perspective, exactly. Yeah. This, these protocols were developed because of people that wanted to contact the entities. So, so let's get into that. What do you think about the entities? <laughs> or well, I don't put you on the spot. I could, but w w what do you think about these entities? I, I'm not sure I've ever encountered an elf machine in my in my DMT experiences, but maybe you know. What, what's going on there? 
in your know really know if these things are coming out of the subconscious or what um you know we really don't understand the mind but i had a friend two friends that uh they they moved to tampa florida and he called me up one day and said we just had the strangest experience my friend and i took some lsd and in the middle of that trip i was projected on board of flying some kind of flying saucer and it was this like reddish reptilian guy who was there and he looked at me saw i was there and he was really freaked out because i wasn't supposed to be there and i was freaked out because i didn't know who he was and i looked at my friend that was tripping with me and i said do you see what i see and he was freaking out too and he said yeah that reptilian thing so i'm going how can two people share hallucination so i'm not sure you know, I, I suggested this to someone, and it was just pure speculation. But is it possible that more advanced civilizations um, communicate through some form of telepathy, and that when you take a psychedelic, it breaks down your conscious inhibitions, and you're more open to that? If you read some of the books about people who have taken trips with LSD, it almost sounds like some of them have had telepathic experiences that they then could verify seeing somebody that had died they'd come to visit them and stuff like that so i don't i don't know when you open up those realms of the mind is it possible you actually can communicate with um alien beings from uh, from other dimensions or whatever i i just i really don't know it's not very scientific to think things like that but um you know having seen people that had paranormal experiences that I could verify in my own life um, there are things that we that I can't explain and so maybe psychedelics open people up to that more uh, so that they're more susceptible to um, say alien influences of one kind or another just total speculation I, I have no basis for you know really believing any of that but um, right it's 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 a tough area because there are so many assumptions that you have to make to talk about it like you know they are in other dimensions or they're in a you know they're extraterrestrial or they're you know and all of this is a sort of the presupposition is that they are outside of ourselves i haven't seen anything that i mean you know in science there's a there's the Occam's razor, you know. There's the idea that the 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 explanation that is the most elegant that explains all the data is probably the correct one. It doesn't need all this embellishment. I haven't seen anything yet that would demonstrate that these entities are not basically products of the imagination, you know, products yeah. of the mind in some ways. If you look at different uh, religious traditions or shamanic traditions and so on. They're crawling with these kind of entities. They're all over the place. They're in every religious tradition. They're in shamanic experiences. And, you know, there was this interesting book recently published on the, the field guide to the DMT entities. I don't know if you happen to get a copy of that. Yeah. Well, they asked me. They asked me to write a blurb for it, so they sent me a copy. So I'm going through it, and it pretty well covers many of the categories of different different categories of these entities. But what struck me is so many of them look basically like we do. You know, I mean, they're humanoid in construction. So to me, I mean, they don't. You know, they don't look like you and I look like normal humans, but they definitely have that same body type and that sort of thing. The vast majority of them would suggest to me that, you know, again, these are based on inner experiences. And that that is does not devalue them as experiences. You can learn from these encounters, but I don't think it proves that there is a realm of other dimensions that somehow you know you can pop open that portal and transport yourself to that dimension that was the terry and denny model when we went to la Chirera. you know we were co totally convinced of exactly that that these things were you know essentially a way to uh visit 
another dimension. Well, we all know how that turned out, you know. And reality had a way of uh, sort of crushing those crazy ideas because, you know, it, it just didn't work. And then at the end of the day, we had to say, or at least some of us had to say, I had to say, most of the insights that we thought we got at La Chirero were gibberish, you know, and they had no meaning. You know, I mean, they were interesting as ideas, but they have, they really have no explanatory, you know, uh, power. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the most logical thing would be is that they're inventions from your unconscious, they're representations of something that theoretically, I guess, if you took a psychedelic and you queried one of these entities, you could say, who are you and what do you want? And they might just dissolve, or they might say, might tell you something about yourself that you've been wondering. But I think you're right. I mean, the most logical scientific explanation is that they're products of your unconscious that are popped up by, you know, these amazing effects of psychedelics. Right, right. I think, I mean, I'm I'm basically a Jungian. I, I'm comfortable with the idea of the collective unconscious, you know, and I, I think that may be... That's a reasonable supposition. The idea that on some bedrock level, you know, we're all connected. And, you know, individuals are like islands in the sea. You know, we're sticking up out of the sea. But underneath, everything is connected. And that may be the, you know, genetic evolutionary repository of these ideas and these these notions of entities because they're so similar in these different traditions. So I think they may represent just the particular instantiation of something that's universal in the collective unconscious. Yeah. I had a, a friend tell me who had uh, spoken, who had spoken in Fiberflexi DMT, that he had this vision and it was like a big pipe that had this intense light inside it, and the pipe had little holes poked in it. And the holes were people's souls were shining through. We were all part of this light inside that was shining through, but we were all coming out as representations, but everything was all one. So those kind of little pokes in the pipe that were letting the light through, I mean, I guess they could be distorted in all kinds of ways. Right, right. Yeah, it seems it seems that I mean these are these are common motifs. So there's there's something about the way these things are structured, and maybe there are commonalities in the uh, you know in the dying process. And I, I think it's pretty clear that Rick Strassman's notion about the activation of pineal, you know, you pretty much put that to to bed. You know, you've demolished that idea. But some of the recent researchers from, I think, the University of Michigan that John Chavez is showing have that DMT is in the brain. It's not concentrated in the pineal. It's actually in the cortex and in various parts of the brain at concentrations that are comparable to serotonin and dopamine and these other neurotransmitters. What, what's your perspective on those why isn't there more research on on this cortical uh the role of dmt in in uh, the cortex or in general on the brain forget the pineal it's not about the pineal the pineal is some kind of you know romantic mythical construct but the fact that dmt is in the brain is pretty well established now so what's it doing well, I don't know if it's it's established in there that it's in physiologically relevant concentrations. The papers I've seen, you know, it's I think it's a it's really a long shot. I don't know if you need to invent DMT to talk about changes in cortical function because normally serotonin activates um, the serotonin two A receptors of the cortical parallel cells, which are the major computational units in the cortex. So when you meditate or you know fast or do any of the kinds of ancient traditions that produce changes in consciousness i don't think you need to invoke 
um, an exogenous, or I guess if you argue that it's there, I don't think you need to invoke that because you've got serotonin there already. Serotonin and norepinephrine both um, activate cortical pyramidal cells. So just a, a change in the electrical conductivity of those cell membranes in the cortical cells is enough to do it. So I don't think you need to invoke another agency just because you know it's a psychedelic. I mean, um, you know, if, if so you're, you're saying that serotonin is the main endogenous psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, that's the main neurotransmitter that regulates tone in the cortical pyramidal cells. So you can change your, you know, the release of serotonin, shut it down and increase it. And you're going to change the conductivity of the pyramidal cells, which is what's essentially at the heart of the psychedelic experience, I think. So you don't need to invoke another, another drug. The only reason they bring it out is because they know that if if people smoke in or are injected, it produces these powerful changes in consciousness because it, it acts at the same receptor as the serotonin acts but in, in, in a somewhat different way. Right. So perhaps through meditation or other techniques, you could you could actually activate this serotonin circuit, and that would be the basis of the of the you know endogenously induced mystical experiences in, in effect it's it's really it's really a serotonin trip you know it's sort of like yeah, that's we're on a serotonin trip all the time in the sense that you know serotonin all these neurotransmitters help synthesize this reality hallucination that we inhabit you know yeah i mean i think that's true you know your your best serotonin tone there all the time. It changes when you go to sleep and go into REM sleep. Um, I I would be willing to bet if you if you got somebody who was doing, you know, a long term meditator, if you could take a sample of his cerebral spinal fluid while he's meditating, I don't think you'd find any DMT there. I, I just told. I think the natural transmitters you modulate those through just any variety of you know tried and true methods that have been used by mystics through the years. Um, and even a spontaneous vesticle experience, I don't think you need to invoke DMT. You can change the, the electronic, the electrical potential of those cells just with your ordinary physiology. Um, so that, that's what I would say. I, I, don't, I don't think you need to invoke an, another substance. And the only reason they do it is because they know it's a powerful psychedelic study. They fought really hard to show that it occurs in the brain and it occurs, you know, in the pineal gland, and uh, you know it's really powerful when it stimulates serotonin two A receptors and sigma one receptors. And but they've worked to try to show that, and I don't think it would be that hard to show if it was really that important. Well, that work should be done. Then I mean that would be very interesting to do that. But uh, you won't get anybody to fund it. So that's the problem. That's the problem. Well, funding psychedelic research is sexy. You know, funding serotonin research and ordinary physiology, even extraordinary physiology, doesn't have quite the cachet. But, uh, well, you know, research you know authorities are the decisions the studies are not based on science, but other factors, you know, so... The studies that were done essentially strangulating rats and showing that they had this massive increase in neurotransmitter release in the brain. Well, dopamine was released, serotonin was released, and maybe some DMT was there, but it was a massive release of norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, and all kinds of things, as well as endogenous opioids, endorphins. Uh -huh. And that's another thing. The endorphins are produced under times of stress. So I think you just, it, there's a whole soup of things that are dumped into the brain if you're near death. And I don't think you need to invoke DMT. In fact, I would say the endorphins are probably more powerful in inducing all the states of consciousness under stress than some of the neurotransmitters are. Right, right. Well, this is, this is probably closer to the truth. It's, it's not what people want to hear, but, you know, but it's probably there's something. I mean, it, basically, what I'm taking away from this is 
the process of dying is almost by definition a stressful process and you're going to get a cocktail of things that are released into the brain dmt may be one of them but certainly that's not the whole picture and yeah the the endorphins and those sort of things but they don't induce psychedelic experiences exactly in endorphins you know it, but well they produce altered states of consciousness right right um so you know i don't we haven't we haven't had anybody who actually has died and come back from the dead to tell us that that the experience was not like endorphins yeah oh that's that's the that's the conundrum we have lots of reports of near-death experience but those are not death experiences you know so they're a reflection of your neurochemistry and state of mind while you're dying and then you know then you come back you don't cross the, the threshold we haven't nobody comes back to tell the story of what it's really like after you cross the threshold which makes me wonder dave what do you think happens when you cross the threshold? Or do you want to... <laughs> <laughs> As a well, scientist, chemist, and pharmacologist, what's going on after death? Is there life after death? Because of the things that I've seen and heard from other people, um, I think that our spirit survives death. You do it. That's my personal opinion. And one of the reasons my first wife um, had all kinds of weird experiences. And uh, she would see things that were going to happen before they happened. And I, before I went to grad school, she described the apartment we were going to live in. And it was to a T. She was always saying things like, and if she, she'd get a, a headache and she'd say, oh, somebody's going to die. I've got this terrible headache. And I, the next day, our mother would call and say, Uncle such and such died. And the thing that was that I remember the most was um, her father had uh, developed cancer and he had been in remission for a while, but then started going downhill. And this was in the summer. And uh, she woke me, and she, I, I was very interested whenever she had a dream because her dreams are always so vivid. What was your dream about? What is your dream? She woke me up and she said, I had a dream last night. It was really vivid. And what was it? Well, my father's mother, her paternal grandmother, had come to her in a dream, and she said she died when I was four years old. And I couldn't, if you'd asked me to describe her, I couldn't tell you. But in the dream, I knew it was her. She said, I'm coming on the 16th at 6 a.m. I said, the 16th at 6 a.m.? This is like August. What does that mean? So time went on, and... It was October 15th, and he had been going downhill. Um, he it started His cancer had started in his prostate, and it had spread into his liver, and he was jaundiced and emaciated and anorectic. And so anyway, she called and told Maxine, she said, I'm afraid it's close. Your father is refusing to rest. And he had said, when his mother died, she came to him in a vision and said, someday I'm going to come back to you. And he remembered that. So he said, I don't want to be asleep when I die. I want to be awake when I die. Mm. And he, and so she called her daughter and wife and said, he's refusing to sleep. I'm saying, Mac, get some rest. Just get some rest. He said, no, he refused to go to sleep. So we hung up the phone. And she said, well, now we'll see if it's tomorrow at 6 a.m. I looked at my watch, and it was the 15th. I said, oh, your dream, 16th at 6 a.m. And he died the next morning at 6 a.m. on the 16th, which is what she had seen in that dream. Now, my son maintains that maybe people from the future can go back to the past or whatever. But for me, the simplest explanation was that his his mother's had lived on come and told Maxine this is when I'm going to come to get him and so there was a date and time that I could verify personally and that's actually what happened so when I look at things like that and then and, and, um, 
I had a wife named Barb, I had a number of wives actually, but um, her son, her brother, Sonny, had been in a wreck in Florida. He'd run away from home because their father was so brutal. He'd run away, he was 15, and had been in a wreck in Florida, a car wreck, a fairly serious wreck. And she was asleep and she said she woke up and Sonny was standing at the bottom of her bed, he walked over, kissed her on the forehead, and then just sort of shrunk down and shot out on top of the ceiling. And, and she couldn't move. She was paralyzed. And then when he shot out, she jumped up and ran out of the hall. And her mother came out and said, were you just in our room? Someone was just in our room. She said, no, no, I just... And so that apparently was a point in time at which he had actually died. He had been injured so seriously that he died. And she was able to connect that to the t his time of death that he'd shown he'd come to tell her that he'd loved her and he missed her. Now, it could have just been a hallucination, but I don't know how she would have known he would have been dying at that exact moment. Um, so, and I used to read a lot of paranormal literature and people would say, you know, I saw such and such who was on an ocean voyage back in the days when they had wooden ships. And uh, he came to me and stood to fill the bed and told me that he was all right and he was going to be fine and he loved me and he missed me. And then, of course, back then it would take two weeks before you'd get a message. Yep. So then two weeks later, she messaged that the ship as it was lost at sea and it was that was exactly when it was. So I read a lot of that stuff and I think, I think there's some art of us that survives, and uh, I don't have any clue what's what's afterward. I mean, but I think there is some part of us, some energy part of us that survives death. And that's very anyway, that's my person. I mean, coming from you, that is pretty reassuring because you know <laughs> you as kind of a very reductionist, hard science kind of guy. Of course, I know you have a lot of funny ideas that you don't talk about publicly, you know, you're, uh, you know, deeply interested in aliens and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, well, we won't go there. <laughs> we'll keep that off. But that's very interesting that you say that. I'm reassured by that. I, I've been sort of leaning toward the idea that there isn't, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to understand how you can you know, you need a brain to support these processes. You need some kind of a physical substrate to, you know, to support consciousness, you know, and how can it exist without that infrastructure or that, that underlying physiological structure? And when that's not working, then I think consciousness is, you know, maybe can't exist without that framework. At the same time, so much. keep in mind that we don't know very much. You know, I mean, we have to keep an open mind. Uh, someone, someone asked me once about that, that sort of same question. I said, suppose that we have this a life force, a field of consciousness, and the brain is just simply a transducer that brings that information into a three-dimensional body. Well, it's possible, yeah. So the brain is more of a receptor for some kind of psychic field. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I mean, I think the brain is definitely a processor of this information. You know, this idea that you receive information from through your sensory neural interface portals, and then the brain kind of takes that information and, and you know, associates it with memories and other kinds of random thing and kind of extrudes this reality hallucination that we inhabit, you know, which is ordinary consciousness. I guess what they call it now is the default mode network, but I prefer yeah. reality hallucination in the sense that we inhabit a model of reality. We don't inhabit reality itself. We never see that but we see our model that's the bubble that we live inside so and and that that is like a waking dream in some ways it's like, so anyway i don't know if we'll ever you, understand you realize of course you're just a segment of my imagination 
Yeah, and you're a figment of mine too. <laughs> you know, we got to agree that there's something out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. When you get into matters of like philosophy and so forth, I mean, it's some, you know, my wife does, my wife thinks when you die, that's it. But yet she had a, she had a paranormal event that she can't explain. How do you explain that? Well, it just happened. I mean, I think there's, I think, I think there's more going on than, than what we understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a very interesting conversation. I thank you for, I have one, one last question. Maybe you can answer it and maybe you can't, but when you see where we were 30 years ago with the Hefter Institute, when the Hefter Institute was founded, we're now in this place with psychedelics where they're being accepted into medicine and uh, everyone, you know, it's always a two-edged sword. Where do you think it'll be in 20 years? Or do you even think about that? You and I will be long gone, but yeah, twenty years. I'll, I'll, I, I have no expectation of living to be ninety-eight years old. Um, I'm hoping that it continues on, and we figure out how to make it scalable. And I, I think that the mental health of Western civilization will be vastly improved. One of the things that you know they found with psychedelics and the studies that Roland did at Johns Hopkins was that psychedelics increase the personality trait of openness. You're more open to new ideas. You're less biased in your beliefs, which means less bigoted, less, you know, racially bigoted. Um, I think it will be good. And I think, you know, the shaman, when they were using these in ancient societies, they were, they were curing all kinds of people, but probably they were also curing bullies and mean people, you know, and trying to make them more acceptable to the rest of the tribe so i think you know in 20 years if, if we can if these can be scaled up and people start using them routinely um and i think they'll be used for things that we can't even anticipate now um i think we'll be much better off as a as a species and as a society in fact if you look at what we're doing you know people that take psychedelics they look at the air pollution or water pollution and Many of those people get really cranked up about what we're doing. And in the 60s, you know, a lot of the 60s that were taking LST, they were, they were the ones that were really shocked at what we're doing in the planet. They were anti-war and things like that. They're all good, good perspectives. So I think, you know, more proliferation of that. In fact, I could see, I could see in the future that you could even have um, sort of a, not a bar mitzvah, but something comparable where you get to be 15 or 16 and you would have a psychedelic session just to get the crap out of you that had been put into you by propaganda and, and dysfunctional parenting, et cetera. So I think the world would be a better place if psychedelics took their yeah, place I, among. I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting that, you know, effectively, I think what you're saying is they can be catalysts for opening our minds, increasing tolerance, helping us be better, more compassionate people. And right now in our society, the trends all seem to be in the opposite direction. It's all about marginalizing, pointing at different groups and saying, you're not like me, and, you know, you, you must be suppressed or you must be, you know, uh, and I mean, I've sometimes said psychedelics are potentially catalysts or they are they're medicines for the soul you know and i don't mean i mean the individual soul but also the collective soul and if we could find a way to integrate these into society in a way that is that respects what they really are you know without stuffing them into necessarily a clinical context or some kind of way to deliver them to people that emphasizes their ability to open people up to basically educate people on a on the moral level to really internalize these ideas that psychedelics bring to the front bring to the forefront that we enunciate but don't always don't always interiorize you know the idea that we are all one you know, I mean, that's that's the basic thing. 
uh, that we're not separate from each other or or nature, any of it. We're all part of this matrix, and the the uh, you know the perception that we we have that we're separate is an illusion. It's part of this reality hallucination that we construct, and it's important to disrupt that. And that's what psychedelics do very well. But yeah, I am hopeful that uh, they'll still be around, and we'll figure out how to use them the better way. Yeah, I think I think sense setting is crucially important because you and I both have known so many people that use recreational psychedelics who are just assholes. Yeah, and uh, they have to be used in the proper context for the. The set and setting, the goal has to be to really look around you, look at the humanity around you, look at the way the world is structured and how you fit it into it and your place in as well as part of the whole and a perspective that allows them to be the kind of catalyst that they can be and not just use kind of willy-nilly. And I think that's important that they be used in the proper context. Right, exactly. And it doesn't have to be clinical. It's uh, in some ways that the ceremonial context is somewhat better. But like, like you know, like some, I often say like with ayahuasca, ayahuasca is a liquid. It will fill whatever vessel you create for it, but it needs to have a vessel. There needs to be a container for the experience. And I think that's true of all the psychedelics. So that's the challenge to create those containers that, that enable them to work rather than waste our time trying to make non-psychedelic psychedelics. I mean, maybe <laughs> it's worthwhile in, from a science point of view, but I don't think it's going to improve, you know, the use of psychedelics. Anyway, it's been a great conversation. What a long, what a long strange trip it's been, Dennis. What's that? What a long, strange trip it's been. Oh, it's been a long, strange trip, that's for sure. And it's not over yet, and it's no. still yeah. plenty strange. <laughs> so thanks very much, Dave. It's been a wonderful conversation, and uh, appreciate it. I hope we, well, I'll see you on the Zoom call on Sunday, I guess, but I hope to see you in person one of these days soon. Yeah, yeah, I miss you, yeah. Yeah, and our board meeting after board meeting is Sunday, right? Yep. yep, yep. Didn't even get into the hefter much, but uh, it is what it is. I mean, it's uh, it, it's amazing that it's lasted this long, and it's still a force, you know. And so that's good. It's very different from what it started out, but it's still doing yeah. good things. And you started it, Dave. You have a lot of. You deserve credit for that. Well, I hope I get some good karma. And if we if we live multiple lives, maybe the next time around I'll get some of that karma back. Right, right. All right. Well, we'll end it here and uh, have a great day. Thanks right. so much. Be well. Yeah. Take care. for listening to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. Find us online at mckenna.academy.